Good morning. Did you guys sleep well? A little lethargic this morning? <laughs> oh, well. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. You know where we're at. We've been in it for a good six or seven months now. I think I've told you this, I've given you this illustration before, but it, it works so well, especially concerning this passage, and I'm going to share it with you again. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, the great American novelist, whose works include To Have and To Have Not, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man in, the Old Man in the Sea, the most classic of his stories. Well, in one of his short stories entitled The Capital of the World, Hemingway tells the story of a Spanish father and his teenage son. And the relationship between the father and the son, it begins to splinter. And then it shatters when the, when the rebellious son runs away from home. And the son, whose, whose name was Paco, was a common Spanish name in that day, he ran away from home. And so his father began a long and difficult search to seek out and find his son, which proved rather unsuccessful. And so as a last last resort effort, he took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper, hoping that his son would see the ad and would respond to it. And the ad read, Dear Paco, please meet me in front of the newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. Love, Father. And as Hemingway tells the story, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were over 800 Pacos all seeking an opportunity to be reconciled in a relationship which they knew they had completely severed. All seeking to be reconciled. You know why a story like that tugs at your heartstrings? It's because there's an element of truth in it. Is there not? All of us have had some sort of a relationship that started out good, And then got a little bit sideways and then splintered and then was completely shattered. Just like the relationship between the father and the son in this account. And yet, if you were honest with yourself, you would admit that you would really like that relationship to be reconciled. Well, how good of a piece of news would it be if you found out that the other person actually wants to reconcile with you? And they've already taken the first step in the process of reconciliation. How good of a piece of news would that be? We might actually call it good news. It's an amazing thing. Well, in our text this morning, Genesis chapter 33, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to see um, just this type of story, a story of reconciliation that points to an an even greater story of reconciliation. So Genesis chapter 33 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we have been tracing, as you know, if you've been with us over these last a couple of months, we've been tracing the narrative of Jacob and Esau ever since Genesis chapter 25. Ever since 25, it's been, it's been the narrative of Jacob and Esau, these two sons of Isaac, where Jacob, the younger son, really wants the blessing. He wants the inheritance. And he gets it by doing an audacious thing. He steals it. And then he heads off to a faraway land where he spends the next 20 years of his life 
living alienated from his family, alienated from his brother. There has been enmity between Jacob and Esau for 20 long years. And yet over that time, Jacob has prospered. He's prospered financially, of course, and he's prospered with his family. He has a rather uh, sizable and growing family. He has 11 sons and one daughter from two wives and two maidservants. So his family has prospered. And, and financially, he has been incredibly, he has become incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. He has a large amounts of servants, large amounts of animals, large amounts of flocks. But there's still, despite all of that, there's this deep hostility between he and his brother. And he's been living alienated from his brethren from the promised land. But what happens is, in chapter 31, the Lord calls to Jacob and he says, I want you to return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. And so Jacob responds obediently to the father's command and he picks up everything he has, his wife's, his kids, his retinue of hired hands, all of his livestock, and he starts making his way back to the promised land. And as he gets closer to the promised land, his anxiety starts to rise. Because he knows as he's going back and he's going to see his brother's face, he's going to have to wrestle with all of his past. In coming face to face with Esau, he's going to have to wrestle with his past. And remember, 20 years. Think how long 20 years is. Do you remember what you were doing 20 years ago? Do you remember what was happening in the world 20 years ago? The Terminator was becoming the governor of California. How'd that laugh? How'd well that go? Gas prices in Oregon were $1.84 20 years ago. Um, if you're a basketball fan, LeBron James was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers 20 years ago. And maybe if he plays another 20 years, he can become as good as Michael Jordan. Um, there's all sorts of things that happened 20 years ago. You look back and you say, well, that was a long time. 20 years ago, I, I figured this out this morning. 20 years ago is when I started at TCF. 20 years, that's a long time. 20 years is a long time. And for 20 years now, there's been this enmity and this alienation between Jacob and Esau. And so as he draws near to the promised land and he's wrestling with his past, he knows that his brother has every right to be angry with him. Why? Well, because Jacob has really, really wronged him. He has really sinned against his brother. And so Jacob starts making his way to Esau. He plans to meet Esau. And one thing we know about Jacob is he always has a plan. He always has a plan. And so he sends messengers ahead of him to meet Esau, to let him know that Jacob's coming, he's returned, and that he's incredibly wealthy, and he's hoping to find favor with Esau. And the messengers come back, and they let Jacob know that Esau received the message, and he's coming with 400 men. And 400 men, I mentioned this last week, 400 men is the standard size of the militia. The standard size of a military militia. So Jacob hears this news. Oh yeah, Esau got the news from him. And he's coming with 400 men. What do you think he's thinking in that part? He's thinking, I'm a dead man. And so he starts popping beta blockers like they're going out of style at that moment. I mean, he's just like, he's popping beta blockers like they're candy. Thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a heart attack. He actually doesn't start popping beta blockers. He starts to pray. Which probably is a better way to deal with our anxiety in the first place. You don't need 
maybe you don't need beta blockers, you probably need to spend more time in prayer, which is exactly what Esau does. And he goes to the Lord in prayer, and we looked at this last week, it's a model prayer, and in the middle of it, he asks the Lord to deliver him from his brother Esau. And then he goes right back to planning to make restitution to Esau. He sends 550 livestock, 550 animals, both females and males for the breeding stock. He sends them in three droves ahead of him to Esau. He knows he stole the blessing from Esau. And so he's trying to make, he's attempting to make restitution. And then he waits to hear. And as he waits, the night falls. And as the night falls, he's all alone. And it's there that God begins to wrestle with him. He thinks he's going to wrestle with his past, which he is. But before he wrestles with his past, God's going to wrestle with him. And it's there, as he's wrestling with God, that he's completely stripped of all of his self-sufficiency. He comes away from it. He meets God personally, no doubt. He meets God personally, and he emerges a changed person. He's no longer Jacob. He's now given the name Israel. He comes away broken, but blessed. He'll walk with a limp for the rest of his life, but he will have a relationship with God for the rest of his life. Broken but blessed. It's a perfect description of anybody who's a genuine Christian. They know that they have done things that have been wrong against God, and God had to strip them of their self-sufficiency, so they're broken in a sense, but they come away blessed. And he's been transformed through the encounter. And now that Jacob has seen the Lord's face and lived, he's ready to see Esau's face. And so Genesis 33 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to work all the way through the chapter. It's 20 verses in all. And uh, and we'll move pretty quick through it. Uh, and here's what you're going to see. In verses 1 through 11, we'll see the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. The reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. Uh, after 20 years of living in alienation, the brothers are finally and fully reconciled. And we'll see how that comes about because it points the way forward to another reconciliation that we all desperately need. And then in verses 12 through 20, we'll see the separation of Jacob and Esau. They go their separate ways, but they go in peace. They know they can't live together. They've been called to different lives, but they go in peace. And um, and that's a good thing. They go their separate ways in peace. And Jacob, by the end of the day, he's seen the Lord's face and Esau's face, and he's lived to tell about it. And so what he does is he builds an altar and he worships the Lord because of the Lord's work of grace in his life. And so with that, let's jump into the text. Genesis 33. Here's how Moses records it. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So after this long night of wrestling with the Lord, a new day has dawned. And he, Jacob lifts up his, lifts up his eyes, and this time he doesn't hear about Jacob coming, or about Esau coming with the 400 men. He sees it with his own eyes. Now again, put yourself in his sandals. What would you be thinking? You're, you're, you're thinking certain death is coming my way, which with every step, death is more imminent. Um, no doubt he's expecting the worst, and you can see he's expecting the worst by what he does next, because he divides his family into three groups. 
with the people he values the most at the back. Look at the second part of verse 1. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, the two maidservants, he put them in the front, and then Leah and her children, and then Rachel, his beloved, and Joseph, last of all. So he, he divides his family up by how he ranks them. And this prompted a saying of the rabbis that said, the more beloved, the more behind. Um, and that's exactly what's taking place here. Jacob, remember, he's already sent a retinue of gifts uh, ahead to try to placate his brother. And he knows as uh, Esau meets his companions, he's going to meet Zilpah and, and Billah, the female servants, and their children. And then Esau's going to meet Leah and her children. And then at the back, the very back, you have Rachel and Joseph. And you can already see, before we get into the account of the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors, you can already see why there might develop a little bit of sibling rivalry. Because if you're one of the kids who was put at the front, what are you thinking? You're thinking, gee, thanks, Dad. I feel the love. Um, I can't believe you put me. You don't really value me. You value Joseph. That's really apparent. Because if this goes bad, real if this goes real bad, real quick, Rachel and Joseph they got a chance to get away. But we, us up front, we're going to be slaughtered in the process. So already, I mean, right here, everybody knows what's going on. It's very clear who Jacob really loves. They they understand what's happening here. Now, to his credit, uh, Jacob rides out front. Look at verse 3. He himself went out before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And so with his face in the ground, Jacob is admitting his past sins. As he's bowing to the ground, he's admitting his past sin. And he's adopting, what he's doing is he's adopting the posture of humility. And the bowing of seven times, that was an ancient, um, an ancient custom of a vassal before his lord in a, um, in a court ceremony. An ancient court protocol is what it is. And that's, that's the posture he's adopting. He's coming to, he's coming to Esau saying, I'm the servant, you're the, you're the master. And I'm bowing down before you. I'm adopting a posture of humility. I'm admitting my past sin by making, trying to make this restitution. And I'm adopting a posture of humility. And then Jacob slowly approaches Esau. And he's got to be expecting 20 years of animosity. 20 years of alienation to be unleashed upon him. And he knows again. He knows his brother's military might. He's, he knows he's already con- conquered Seir. He knows there's 400 men with him. He's probably expecting to have his head lopped off right in the moment. He expects the worst, but he receives the best. Look at verse 4. But Esau, but Esau ran. Underline the word ran. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. Underline the word embraced. He ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Underline the word kissed. And they wept. He, 
Now look at what this, look at what Esau does. He runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him, and they weep over. This is amazing. This is unmerited favor. And Jacob, um, or Esau has not come to kill him, but to accept him. He's not coming there to harm him or to judge him, but to embrace him and to wrap his arms around him. Can you imagine, put yourself in this, can you imagine the relief that would wash over a person whom they know that they deserve judgment, but instead they actually receive mercy? Can you imagine the relief that would wash over a person under those circumstances? Let me ask you, have you actually experienced that type of relief? Knowing that you deserve judgment, but instead you received mercy? Has that happened to you? It should. If you're in Christ, that's exactly what's happened to you. So he receives this amazing, amazing grace. And so they're, they're sitting there weeping. They're embracing, they're weeping, these, these brothers. And Esau and Jacob's family starts coming forward. One by one. And Esau sees them. And look at what he says, verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his, his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? <laughs> these little ones. Look at all these little kids walking around. Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near and their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And lastly, Joseph and Rachel drew near. And they bowed down. Now notice what Jacob does here. He, he ever so wisely chooses his words. Did you notice that? He says, these are the ones that God has graciously given to me. He doesn't say, these are the, these are the children that God has blessed me with. Because the last time the term blessing was associated with Jacob, it was in him stealing it. And so he doesn't choose, he doesn't choose that word. Uh, he chooses his words wisely. He chooses his words very tactfully. Um, now, let me say something here as a sidebar, not a part of the main message. I'll just offer it to you as a freebie. Uh, we live in a world, for good or for ill, where we can say anything to anyone at any time. And because of that, there's a lot of empty words. There are um, words that carry no weight, no value. They offer nothing good or productive. Uh, which means, as a Christian, we've got to be wise about how we speak. We've got to be wise about how and when we speak. Uh, there's an ancient proverb that says, when, we, when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. There's a Jewish proverb that says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Have you ever felt that? Has, it, has anybody ever uh, used words with you and it felt like sword thrusts? Do you ever hear anybody on the TV who every word is like sword thrusts? Proverb goes on and says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Uh, there's a more modern one that I quote to myself all the time. It says, never miss a good chance to shut up. 
It's by Will Rogers, and uh, it's a great. I quote that self. I quote that thing to myself all the time. Never. Some of you are thinking, take your own advice, buddy. Well, but I do. I quote it to myself all the time. Never miss a good chance to shut up, because when words are many, uh, sin is not absent. Listen, friend. Again, we live in this culture where the loudest and the most vulgar gets all of the attention. Empty words. Don't align yourself with people whose words are like thrusts of a sword. Uh, it's good and right for a Christian to choose their words. Uh, it's good and right and wise to choose your words tactfully. To choose words, choose your words wisely so that when you speak, they bear weight. And they actually produce healing. And that's, that's what Jacob does here. He doesn't use the term blessed right here. He uses God his graciously. He chooses these words very wisely. And as Esau seeing Jacob's kids come forward one by one with their, their mothers, they bow down before him. And they too are adopting a posture of humility. They're bowing down before him. And so Esau speaks, verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company? That I met. Um, all this company is referring to the 550 livestock that's been already given to him, then split up into the three droves and sent ahead to Esau to try to make restitution. And so Jacob, he says, What do you mean by all this company um, that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, he's trying to make restitution, he's admitting his past sin. He's adopting a posture of, of humility. He's attempting to make restitution. And then verse 9, But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Oh, those words, my brother. Jacob probably never thought he would hear Esau call him his brother again. And he says, no, you're, you are my brother. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And then he urged him. And he, Esau, took it. So restitution is finally made. And the fact that Esau doesn't offer a gift in exchange indicates that he's accepting the livestock as a payment for wrong that's been done against him. And now that the payment of restitution has been made, they are finally and fully reconciled. 20 years after the fact, 20 years of hostility, 20 years of alienation, and after admission of sin, restitution was made and they're finally and fully reconciled. And now, after they're finally and fully reconciled, they're able to separate and live at peace with one another. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, um, let, us, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care for me, are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. Um, he says, we're living kind of incompatible lives. And everybody who has young kids knows that you don't travel at the same pace 
as a military militia. Um, when you're dealing with car seats, you're dealing with potty breaks every 15 minutes. You're not you're not making your way down the highway all that that quickly. And here's Jacob. Esau says this to him, and he's buckling the booster seat into the camel, and he's thinking, "Look, man." <laughs> We don't travel at the same speed as you. Um, and it's kind of a, a polite way of declining is what he's saying. And we do this with our family, don't we? Your family, you haven't seen your family in a while. They say, oh, come and visit. And you're like, yeah, yeah, next time I'll, I'll be down. I'll, I'll make sure I, I pop on in. And then we never do it. And that's kind of exactly the feeling here. Uh, Esau's inviting him and Jacob is politely declining saying, yeah, we'll come on, we'll come down next time we're in the vicinity. And so Esau extends a a second offer, verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. And at that point, Esau probably knows that Jacob is again politely declining the proposal. And so they separate, but they separate reconciled and in peace. Verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth uh, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Uh, so Jacob, uh, he crosses the Jordan River, he enters back into the promised land, and he builds a little dwelling there for he, for himself, and little shelters, uh, for his livestock. And then from there he moves to Shechem, which is where the Lord appeared to Abraham at the first. And the Lord told him, I give you this land. And in response, do you remember what happens? But this is way back in Genesis 12. The Lord comes to Abraham and says, in Shechem, I give you this land. And Abraham builds an altar there and worships the Lord. And that's exactly what we see Jacob do here. He settles in the land peacefully. He actually purchases the land. And then he too builds an altar and worships the Lord. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely. Some of your translations, it will say peacefully. Jacob came safely or peacefully to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So he too, Jacob builds an altar and dedicates it to the God, to, to the God of Israel. And by this action, what he's doing is he's acknowledging the Lord's grace. And he's saying, I will worship him and him alone. And the account, it ends right there. And we'll do the same. So Jacob goes from deep alienation to reconciliation. He goes from having a relationship that for 20 years was filled with uh, animosity. It was filled with enmity. To being finally and fully reconciled by admitting his past sin, by adopting a posture of of humility by attempting to make restitution and then after he makes restitution by acknowledging the Lord's work of grace by con- by going by coming to an altar and worshiping the Lord that's an amazing story it's an amazing story to go from deep alienation to being fully reconciled isn't that what you hope would happen in your relationships that are filled with strife isn't that what you hope would happen to your relationships that have been completely shattered they're marked 
by alienation. In this scene where we read that the offended party, he runs, embraces, and kisses the one who has caused alienation. Oh my goodness. Well, that's, that's flat out amazing. It's such an amazing story that Jesus, in Luke chapter 15, he purposefully plagiarizes it. Jesus would not pass our modern English classes because he takes this account and he plagiarizes it and he doesn't cite it. He doesn't say, I got this story out of Genesis chapter 33. He just tells it and he reinterprets it for his audience. In Luke chapter 15, what happens is the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're angry with him because Jesus was associating and spending time with and sharing meals with the outcasts of that society, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. And they're upset with Jesus that he was spending his time with these people. And so Jesus tells a series of stories about how God's heart is for the outcasts. God's heart is for people who are far from him. And he wants to welcome them home. And he wants to be fully reconciled with them. Even though there's been deep alienation because of past sinful choices. And in the third and climactic story, Jesus tells a story about two sons and a father. And the younger son wanted the inheritance. He wanted the blessing. And in the most shocking way, he got it. And then he had to move away to a faraway land where he lived for an extended period of time. But after he repented, he started making his way back. And as he made his way back, after being separated and alienated for so long, the offended party, in this case, in the Luke 15 story, in this case the dad, he sees him and what does he do? He runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Well, where do you think Jesus got that? He got it right out of here. Why doesn't he cite it? Because everybody knew it. They all knew the story. By the way, another sidebar. The fact that Jesus takes a story out of the Old Testament and reinterprets it and uses it for his purpose, what does that tell you about Jesus' value of the Old Testament. So much of Jesus' teaching comes straight out of the Old Testament. You'll hear today in our culture that we should uh, unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. That's hogwash because so much of Jesus' teaching comes straight out of the Old Testament. And this is one of the occasions. In Luke 15, he purposefully does this. And so he tells this story. He, In all of Scripture... All of scripture, we only see this threefold welcome of running, embracing, and kissing in the story of Jacob and in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus, by telling it, at a minimum, he's doing two things. At a minimum, he's doing two things. And I think that, I actually think there's a host of other things that Jesus is doing, and I hope in the next ten years to figure it all out. But he's doing at least two things. First, here's what he's doing. He's rebuking the Pharisees. When these Pharisees come and they say, why do you associate with these people who are far from you and are alienated? Uh, why are you associating with these people? And by just by telling the story and not citing it, just by telling the story of two sons uh, and a father, 
The younger son gets the blessing, goes off in the faraway land, comes back, and later is embraced. By telling the story in this way, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees by saying, Esau, the the degenerate. Esau, the rejected. Esau, the one who is not a part of the covenant community. Esau actually reflects the heart of the father better than you do, you religious leaders. He actually reflects the heart of the, the, the Father much better than you do. You think you're representing God by condemning those who are alienated from God? But Esau, the one who's outside of the covenant community, actually represents God better than you do. You know how big of a slam that is to a religious person? It is a major slam. Because religious people like to go around and say, well, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this other thing, you can't be a part of the covenant community. And Esau welcomes him back home. And Jesus, by telling the story, is saying, you people actually don't represent God at all. You think you do, but you don't. Esau represents God better than you do. But here's the second thing Jesus is doing by tying in the Jacob and Esau story. He's saying the reconciliation that was brought about on a horizontal level between Jacob and Esau, he's saying that's actually available on a vertical level between us and the Lord. The reconciliation that was brought about on a horizontal level between Jacob and Esau is actually available to you and I on a vertical level with us and the Lord. Because we are, even though we don't care to admit it, we're just like Jacob, only worse. Because we're not just alienated from a sibling because of our past sinful choices. We're alienated from the Lord himself. And yet, what Jesus tells us is the way, of reconcili- the way of reconciliation is available. And how does he do it? He goes back and he tells a story out of Genesis 33. Well, how is the way of reconciliation available? Well, the text tells us. Genesis, t- Genesis 33, it tells us the path of reconciliation. It tells us the price of reconciliation. And it tells us the proper response to reconciliation. So the path, the price, and the proper response to reconciliation. Well, what is it? Well, let's go. Here's the first one. What's the path? What's the text tell us? What's Genesis 33 tell us? What does Jacob do? What's Jacob do? Well, here's what he does. First, he admits his past sinfulness. What's the, what's the path of reconciliation? First, Jacob admits his past sinfulness. Jacob fears Esau because he knows he's caused the alienation. He knows he's made poor choices. He's, for 20 years, lived alienated from Esau because of his past sinful choices. He knows he's lied to him. He knows he's deceived him. He knows he's lived far away from him and had heart alienation because of his past sinful choices. And the path of reconciliation with God, it begins by admitting you're alienated from God and you're far away from him because of your past sin. And you gotta own it. You gotta own that fact. Just as Jacob did. And that's the part none of us like to do. We, none of, none of us like to own our own sin. None of us like to admit that we're actually a sinner. But like Jacob, you got to admit it. you got to admit your sinfulness. Jacob admits his own sinfulness. So the path of reconciliation, it begins by admitting your own sinfulness. He admits his own sinfulness, but what else does he do? He adopts a posture of humility. He comes before Esau and he says, please let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Did you catch that? He says, please let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And that is the heart attitude of anyone who is seeking to be reconciled with the Lord himself. They're saying, I know I deserve judgment. I know I deserve judgment because of my past, but I'm pleading 
for your unmerited favor. So what's the path? It's right here. The path to be reconciled with the Lord is to admit your sin, admit your past sin, uh, adopt a posture of humility before the Lord. The path, okay, I can do that. Well, what's the price of reconciliation? Well, what do we see here? He knows he stole from his brethren, so what does he do? He pays it all back. 550 animals. He pays it all back. And once the payment has been accepted, he's finally and freely uh, reconciled to his brother. So in order to move from, from alienation, in order to move from hostility to reconciliation, you've got to pay it all back. Well, therein lies the problem. Because we can't. How much do you owe a holy God for your sin? You see, you can't pay it back and live. We can't pay off our debt to a holy God and live. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. Which means we can't pay off our sin and live. Well, then what chance do we have of being reconciled to God on our own? Zip. Zero. Nada. Which means what humanity needs. Well, shoot. Throw humanity out. What you need. What you need is if you're someone like Jacob. And let's admit it, we all are. What you need is for someone to see your plight. To be moved with compassion and to make a way towards you. And pay your debt. And this is exactly what Christ has done on your behalf. We have a whole host of time. So turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see this. New Testament. Colossians. Um, one of the general epistles. It is after 2 Corinthians. No, it's later. General Electric, Pop, general Electric Power Company. It's after Philippians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. If I make you turn in your Bible, you'll wake up. Restitution needs to be paid. A payment needs to be paid in order to clear our debt. And we can't pay it and live. Because the wages of sin is death. And so what we need is we need somebody to make our payment. And look at what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. Colossians 1 verse 21. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Look at what Paul says. He says, and you... Now, remember, he's talking to the church at Colossae, the believers, those who have accepted Christ. He says, and you... And you once were alienated and hostile in mind. There existed hostility, alienation and hostility. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, past sin. He has now, who's he? Christ. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Do you see what he's saying? That's amazing. Christ has made the payment on your behalf. He pays the debt that you can never pay. I say this almost every week. He lives the life we should have lived but never could. He dies the death we deserve to die in order to give us what only he deserves. 
a free and full relationship with God the Father. He only deserves it. He's the only one who rightly deserves that. And when you come to him in faith, he gives you that relationship. He cleanses you of your sin. He gives you new life in his name. He gives you a new standing with God the Father. So you now have, he's paid all of your debt. You now have a free and full relationship with God the Father. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Skip down to verse 18. Paul's talking, oh man, it's so hard to jump into this. He's talking about how we've been reconciled to God. And he says in verse 18, he says, all of this is from God. <laughs> he says, you should have no relationship with God, but he's reconciled, he's, you've been reconciled to him through the work of Christ. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ, keep going, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Christ to be sin, even though he knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is stunning. Listen, friend, the path of reconciliation, the path of reconciliation with God is wide open to you. Maybe you came in here this morning and you thought... Maybe you thought when I walked through the doors that you were going to catch on fire. Um, maybe you thought you would never darken the doors of a church before. Maybe you thought, there's no way, I'm too far gone, I'm too far alienated from God. No, look, look. Look at what this passage is telling you. The path of reconciliation with God is wide open to you because Christ has paid your debt. All you need to do is to admit your sinfulness. To adopt a posture of humility, you rest in the provision that Christ has made on your behalf. He's paid your debt for you, you rest in that, you come to him and you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have paid my debt. I want to live with you forever. I'm admitting my past sin. I know I'm a sinner. I freely admit it now. I'm acknowledging that. I'm coming to you as my Lord. I'm pleading for your unmerited favor and I'm resting in the prison that you made at the cross through Christ. You have paid my debt so that I can live freely and fully before you forever. That's all you got to do. And then, like Jacob, you acknowledge the Lord's grace. How? What does Jacob do? He comes to the altar and he worships the Lord. Jacob, after being reconciled to his brother and restored to the covenant community, he comes to the altar and wholeheartedly he worships the Lord, thanking him, thanking the Lord for his work of grace. And that's actually what we're going to do right now. Uh, we're going to come to the altar, the Lord's table, where we're going to thank the Lord for the work of Christ, who saw our plight, who was moved with compassion, and who came to us and moved into our neighborhood and then went to the cross on your behalf, so that when you put genuine faith of Him, you can be fully reconciled to God the Father permanently. And so this morning when you came in, you should have got a little packet of communion. 
Does anybody not have a packet of communion? Everybody has a packet? So I've got to explain this this morning. There is a shortage of communion supply in America right now. <laughs> First it was the great toilet paper crisis. Then I don't remember the second crisis, but now we're on a shortage of communion. So there's two different types of communion depending on what you got. One package has the communion at the top and one lid and another one on the other side is the juice. Others of you got the juice and the bread on top together and they're in separate packages and it's a little tricky to open. I tried this morning, um, even with my glasses on, I had to really sit there and really work with it. So depending on what you got, um, make sure the grape juice is not down. Is that fair? <laughs> but if you got the one where the uh, bread is up, you start there. Okay? So, how's that? So we're going to take communion this morning. And of course, what the communion tells us, what it shows us, is how the path to reconciliation with God was made through the, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross, who paid your debt, the debt that you could never pay. You can never pay it and live. Jesus says, I want to be reconciled. The Father wants to be reconciled. God wants to be reconciled with you. I'll pay it. I myself, God in the flesh, will pay it so that you who do not deserve his favor, who do not deserve his mercy, who do not deserve eternal life with him can have it forever. That's why we come to the Lord's altar. That's why we worship the Lord so freely. That's why we rejoice in the finished work of the cross. That's why when Easter rolls around each year, we celebrate the heck out of it. (laughs) Because it's the most amazing thing in the world. So let's pray and then we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, We are so humbled to be your people. We know, like Jacob, we do not deserve to be reconciled to you. That the alienation that exists, that existed between us was due to our own sin. It was due to our own choices. And yet, because you are a God of mercy, you came in the person of Jesus Christ. You moved into our neighborhood and you went to the cross where you paid our price so that we could be reconciled to you completely, fully. We can have a full and free relationship with God the Father. Our relationship with you is not based upon our works, not based upon our religiosity, but it simply rests in the provision of Christ for us. Hmm. Lord, we pray that this reality would make us some of the most joyful people the planet's ever seen. (laughs) That we would not be fueled or motivated by anger. We would be fueled and motivated by your love. We would rest and celebrate all that you have done on our behalf. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.